Uh, thank you so much to Nick and the team for leading us, us, especially in the worship this morning. I'm so thankful to have sang that song again, right in me. I told you this morning, the last time I sang that song was in Rosettenville when I was still there ages ago. So thank you so much to, to Nick and the team. Although it's a long weekend and many are away, we are back in Second Samuel. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, here the narrator has not just recorded a psalm of David that we looked at last week, but here the last words of David. Not the last words of David on his deathbed, but the last word of official uh, declaration to the nation. Uh, and these last words, we see again his hope in the Davidic covenant that God will raise up a son after him. Uh, a, a son who will ultimately be righteous. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to uh, chapter 23, and we'll be reading all of the chapter, yes, even the names at the end of it. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high the anointed of, God, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed." These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashibeth, a Tachumanite, he was chief of the three. He yielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoyhai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to his sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, uh, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there, was, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he stood, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was most renowned of the thirty and became the commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. 
He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him and with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elika of Herod, Elez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezo of Anoth, Mebunai, the Hushatite, Zalmon, the Ahuite, Murai of Nepoth, Netophah, Helob, the son of Benah of Netophah, Itar, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hedai, the brooks of, of the brooks of Gash, Ibi Albon, the Arabathite, Azmaveth of Barurim, Iliabar, the Shalonite, and the sons of Jason, Jonathan, Shama, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphelet, the son of Abishai, of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, Jezreel of Carmel, Parai the Arbite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelik the Ammonite, Naharai of Beeroth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zerah, Ira the Ethrite, Gerib the Ethrite, Uri the Hittite, 37 in all. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Yes, every word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, by your grace, you have preserved your word for us. And we pray that we would humble ourselves before your word, that you would make us to know your ways through your word, that you would teach us your paths, that you would lead us in your truth, that you would teach us because you are our God, the God of our salvation. And because it's for you that we wait. We long to hear your words. We long to know your precepts. We long to grow in our relationship with you. We long to have you reign in us as we've sang. So that we would reflect your beauty. Be with us now as we consider these verses, this passage. Help us to see marvelous things of you, of your wonder. But also of who we need to be in response. Help us in this, give us the ears to hear the heart that rejoices in the hands that will do and live for your pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we looked at 2 Samuel 7, at the Davidic covenant, I made the point that we all need a king. Uh, whether we agree to that or not, whether we know it or not, every single one of us need a king. We need a king who can defend us, who can lead us, who can protect us, who can uphold us. And that's why we love these epic stories of these kings who at the last minute rescue their people. We need a king. And this morning our passage would tell us that we need a king, yes, but we need a king who is righteous. We need a king who is upright. We need a king who fears the Lord. And, and I'm sure you would agree. I'm sure that wouldn't surprise us. If we look at our world, if we look at our continent, if we look at our country, we see all around us the lack of righteous leaders. We see many leaders around us who prop themselves up as kings, yet very few of them know what righteousness is. Very few of them lead with justice. Very few of them fear God. And as a result, we see all around us, our people, our nation, our country languishes as a result. It's no secret that the problems that we have as a country today is a result of the lack of righteous leaders. And we have been burdened with unrighteous leaders in our midst, in a sense and to a degree that unrighteous leaders are even the consequences of 
and the judgment of God upon an unrighteous nation. Now, the nation of Israel found itself in a similar yet different, different situation at the end of David's reign. As we saw two weeks ago, the, the nation of Israel at this point is filled with rebellion and injustice and distrust and famine and war and murder and suffering. This is not a kingdom that enjoys the promised rest of Second Samuel 7. Why? Because the king has proven unrighteous, just as the people have proven themselves unrighteous. And what our passage tells us, and as David is carried by the Holy Spirit and declares the word of God, it tells us the hope of a righteous king. In fact, our passage gives us what we would call a prophetic principle. The principle is this, that there is great benefits in having a righteous king, but it's also a prophecy because there will be a king from David who will be righteous. A king who will be righteous and lead to rest. A future king from David who will bring his enemies to an end and will bring his people into the promised rest. In a sense, through this prophetic principle, through this word of God, through David, God is telling us this morning, here is the king you need. Here is the king you've been longing for. Here is the king that your soul and your heart longs for, even as you languish under unrighteous leaders in this country and in this world. Here is the king you need to set your hopes on. And that king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We've pointed that out week after week, that David's kingship is a, a, a glimmer, a shadow, pointing us to the greater king, our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. Now, now this morning, as we work our way through this text, I want us to see two things from our text, from the two sections of this chapter, and, and four points under each. Now, it's not an eight-point sermon, so don't worry. It's two points with four sub-points that build up that one point. Okay, so it's not eight points. Okay? Nevertheless, gird your loins. First thing I want you to see is the king we need. I want you to see the king we need. In verse 1 to 7, we have this oracle of David, this prophetic principle, and it's about a son of David who will be righteous. And there are a few things we can learn from this king and learn from why he is the king we need. The, the king we need, firstly, I want you to see is, a, is chosen by God. The king we need is chosen by God. In, in verse 1, David describes this king in a fourfold way. He, he says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then he adds that with another fourfold description in verse 2 onwards. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. These word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Now, now the reason why David is, is laying up these points and belaboring the point is he wants to, to emphasize his authority, his importance. He, he wants his people to take this oracle seriously. Why must they take it seriously? Because David is the Lord's anointed. David is the one who has been equipped with God's spirit. After all, he's the man after God's own heart. Now, someone asked me two weeks ago what that means, and, and I, I, I prefer Alistair Begg's description. He, he says that saying isn't describing the place that God has in David's heart, as if David is a man after God's own heart because he is more devoted than others. No, the heart behind that description is this. It's describing the place that David has in God's heart. In God's heart, David is cherished. David is loved. David is delighted in. We saw that last week in chapter 22, verse 20. Now, if that is true of David, if he is the man after God's own heart, if he is the man after God's own choosing, then how much more so the righteous king that comes from David? 
See, the king we need is a man after God's own heart, a man after God's own choosing, a man whom God delights in. And that's exactly who Jesus is, isn't he? Remember in the beginning of Mark's gospel, at Jesus' baptism, we see the Spirit of God descending on Jesus and the heavens being torn open and the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Even in Mark 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. Even Jesus says in Luke 14, when he applies his eye to himself, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, meaning that that he is the one the Father delights in. He is the one the Father favors. See, in a far greater way than David, Jesus is the man of the gods and heart because he's God's own eternal son. He's chosen by the Father. He's delighted in by the Father. He's cherished by the Father. Jesus is, is the king we need. He's a king who is cherished and loved by God. Second thing about this king we need to note, the king we need is is righteous before God. He's righteous before God. If you look at the second part of verse 3, that's really the focal part of this oracle, and we see that this king is one who rules justly over men. That is to say, and what good news this is, he's not crooked, he's not corrupt. No, he rules righteously over men. He doesn't rule seeking his own selfish gain because he's a king who actually fears God. He's a king who rules by walking in the ways of God, by seeking the will of God, which means that this king and his kingship is one that is good and blessed. And again, this is really pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is only true of Christ. Uh, Let me refer you to two prophecies in the Old Testament that that describe Jesus' kingship in in these terms. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. That is to say, God's people will have their rest. And this is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Now now listen also to Isaiah 11, which is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear much fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees. He shall decide or, or but with sorry, or decide disputes by which he is ear here, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide equity for the meek on the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the waste, shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the New Testament is clear. Jesus is this righteous king, a king who is filled with the Spirit of God, who is righteous before God, who fears God, and who rules, unlike the kings of this world, with wisdom and justice. And righteousness, caring for the meek, caring for the poor. This is the king we need. Not just that, I want you to see that the king we need is also blessed of God. Notice the outcome of this king's reign in verse 4. He dawns on them, it says, like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. 
So we see here three images used to describe this king, the dawning light, the, the warming sun, the refreshing rain, and all within agrarian culture meant and pointed to, to a healthy crop, or point to a, a refreshing revival of, of new life in the harvest. Even Dalworth Davis mentions that freshness and vitality ooze out of verse 4. See, this, rule, this king rules, and when he rules, he brings renewal. He brings refreshment. He rules with run, and there is life. But, but more can be said. Uh, these three images describing this king point us to the blessings that are ours in Jesus. Firstly, as, as the dawning light, this king enlightens. Although we were once in darkness, he leads his people into the light. I think of Jesus, how Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In our darkness, in the darkness of this world, Jesus is the king who brings light. Secondly, as the warming sun, this king enlivens. Although once cold and dead, he brings life. I think of Jesus, how Malachi 4 verse 2 describes him. He describes it as, as the sun of righteousness who shall rise with healing in its wings. What kind of healing? The healing of our sin. Sin that leads to death. Or consider Luke 1, 78 to 79, where Jesus is described as the sunrise who shall visit us from on high to give light to those in sit in darkness and those in the shadow of death. So though we see cold, deadness all around us in this world, Jesus is the King who revives, who brings light and life to those who once dead. Not just that, as the refreshing rain, this king enlarges. Although once barren, although once dead, this king produces growth. He leads his people to abound with fruitfulness. I think of Jesus again, John 15, verse 5. Whoever abides in me, he says, and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, this king not only leads us out of darkness into the light and life, but he produces a crop of righteousness, of good works. This king enlarges, he, he finishes what he starts. See, all these blessings point us to, to the blessings we have in Christ. He's not a king who leads his people into darkness, into load shedding, He's a king who leads his people into blessing. A leader who cares for them. This is the king we need. Last thing that I want you to see about the king we need is that he's strengthened by God. He's strengthened by God. In verse 5, David reaffirms the covenant promise that a righteous king will come from his house. He says, for does not my house stand so with God? And he not just says that, he, he reaffirms that God himself will keep his promise, that God himself will bring about this king. He says, therefore, he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? In other words, the king, this king, this promised king will be sustained by God. And not just sustained, but strengthened. How so? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, But worthless men, that is, sons of Belial, worthless men who disregard the godless, the ungodly, worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. Now what does that mean? It means that these worthless men, these ungodly, godless people, like thorns, cause harm and pain and destruction, and therefore not anyone can take them away. But here's the hope, verse 7. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Who is that man? 
Well, it's this promised king. This promised king who is sustained and strengthened by God. And the point is this. This king is strengthened by God and he consumes his enemies. He conquers his foes. His foes that lead his people into fear and trouble and and harm and pain. He conquers them. Again, I hope you get the point. This king is the king we need. This king is none other than Jesus. Uh, Listen to how Jesus applies this to himself in Matthew 13, verse 40 to 43. Jesus says, just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked will be dealt with. And therefore it says, then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, Jesus is the king we need. He's the king who takes hold of the ungodly and the wicked. And he consumes them. He casts them away. Now, in all, all in all, I hope you see that this, the point behind this prophecy given by David is that this is about Jesus. Here, dear friends, is the king we need. Here is the king we need to long for. This is the king we need to yield ourselves to. Here is the king that is unlike any other. And this king, knowing that he is king, ought to comfort our hearts. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel rejected. You feel despised. You feel cast out. You feel forsaken. This world has chewed you up and cast you out. You feel all alone. Know this. If Jesus is your king, you are chosen and beloved in him. If he's beloved by the Father and you find yourself in him, guess what? The Father views you with the light. And pleasure. All who, did, who, all who receive him, John tells us, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And so if this king is your king, you are beloved and chosen before the Father. What a comfort that ought to be. But perhaps you're here this morning and and you're overwhelmed with the shame of your sin. You know you're a sinner. You know you've fallen short of God's standards. You know you're guilty. You know that you are unrighteous before God. And if God is just, He would take you this very moment and cast you away. Well, if Jesus is your king, you are counted as righteous before God. If Jesus is your king, his righteousness becomes yours. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 3, 9, he says, If you're found in him, we do not have a righteousness of our own by the way of the law, but we have righteousness that comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you believe upon this king, if Jesus is your king, you are righteous. Despite the fact that you actually are unrighteous, you are counted before God as good and pleasing. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a believer, you know all of this, Jesus is your king, you know your righteousness is found in him, but you've lost the joy of your salvation. You've been laid low by various burdens. You've been laid low by despair. You feel spiritually dry and famished. Well, again, here's the comfort. If Jesus is your king, there is an abundance of blessing in him. There is joy to be had in the king of glory. Ephesians 1 so he reminds us that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spirit 
spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And therefore, what he said in Psalm 144 verse 13 is true of us. Blessed are those who's, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. In Jesus, you have abundant blessing, forgiveness, grace, acceptance. In your lack, you have abundance in Him. And therefore, seek Him. Yield yourself to Him. But again, perhaps you're here this morning and you, you know this, but you still want to give up. You feel broken by the burdens and the troubles of life. You're grieving. You feel pain. You feel that the sinful flesh is just too strong. You feel that this world is just too much to overcome. You feel like that Satan is, is too strong. You feel like defeat is certain. Well, if Jesus is your king, then you have guaranteed victory in the one who is strengthened and sustained by God. You have a king who has conquered his enemies, and you have a king who will conquer yours. Sin, Satan, and this world. Colossians reminds us that if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ. When he then appears, who is your life, you will appear with him in glory. Free from the thorns in the flesh. Free from unrighteousness and ungodliness that robs your joy. You will appear with him in glory if he is your king. This is the king we need. This is the king our soul secretly long for. The question is, will you have him as your king? Is he your king if not, if you haven't yielded yourself to him, will you not do so today? Will you not yield yourself into his righteous hands? Believe upon him as your king. Put your faith in him. Trust him as Savior and Lord. Choose him as the rightful king of your life. Trust him as the only righteous king in this world. And follow him as the king who rules with wisdom and fairness and goodness. Uh, Edward Pierce was a Puritan in the mid-1600s. Uh, he didn't live very long. He only lived about 40 years. And he wrote a few treatises, and one of the treatises is called The Best Match. He, he describes, I think, beautifully all the blessings that we have if we have Christ as ours. Listen to, listen to what he says. Why then should I not rest and rely upon him? It is true. I am a mighty sinner, but he is a much more mightier Savior. Have I sinned to the utmost? Well, he has satisfied to the utmost. What shall I say? True, I am death, but Christ is life. I am darkness, but Christ is light. I am sin, but Christ is holiness. I am guilt, but Christ is righteousness. I am emptiness and nothingness, but Christ is fullness and sufficiency. I have broken the law, but Christ has fulfilled the law. And his life is infinitely able to swallow up my death, his light, my darkness, his holiness, my sin, his righteousness, my guilt, his fullness, my emptiness. On him, therefore, I lean and love and hope. It is true. I am utterly unworthy of any life, any grace, any favor. But Christ does all for sinners freely. Freely he loves. Freely he pardons. Freely he saves. However vile, therefore, I am. However unworthy I am. Yet I will rest and depend on him. Dear friends, that's what someone can say when Christ is their king. When they know that in him they are chosen and beloved, they are righteous, they have blessing, and they are a victory in him. The question becomes, however, if Jesus is the king we need, and if we choose him and trust him and follow him, then the question becomes, what kind of people do we need to be? This leads me to the second thing to take note this morning, and that is the people we need to be. 
Uh, so the first part of 2 Samuel 23 points us to the king we need, right? Well, now what do we do about the second part and all these names that barely no one can pronounce? What are we to make note or take from these? In, in verse 8 to 39, we have the list of these mighty men of David who proved faithful, who served their king with, with loyalty and honor and, and faithfulness. I may suggest to you, if David is an imperfect shadow to the king we need, then David's men are an imperfect shadow to the people we need to be. If Jesus is our king, and if he has redeemed us, then we must serve him. How? Well, we can learn some lessons from these men. The first thing I want you to see, the people we need to be, is we need to be a people who are courageous for God. We need to be a people who are courageous for God. In verse 8 to 12, uh, the narrator lists three of David's mighty men, Josheb, I won't pronounce the rest, Eleazar, Shammah. Uh, these three men are the best of the best, as it were. They, they stand together as the three. But what makes these men stand out isn't the fact that they slayed many men. No, the, the thing that stands out about them is when the fight seemed lost, when defeat seemed certain, they stood their ground. Josheb stood alone against 800, verse 8. When Israel withdrew in defeat, Eleazar stood firm in verse 9 to 10. And when other men fled for their lives, we're told Shammah risked his own. See, against all odds, these men stood up and were courageous for their king. And notice twice we're told in verse 10 and 12 that they did this and the Lord gave them victory. Which tells us that on the one hand, God uses his servants to accomplish their, his ends. And on the other hand, that God carries his servants. He strengthens them as they carry out his purposes. And the lesson for us is simply this. We mustn't learn from these men a lesson of self-sufficiency. We must learn God-dependency. Just like David with courage, dependent upon God when he faced Goliath, so these men did. And so too we must. Here's the application for us. If we have been redeemed by God, if God's Son has saved us and He's with us to the end of the age, then should that not make us courageous? If the king of glory is reigning over his people in his church, should that not make us the most courageous people on the face of the earth? Now, don't mistake the courage I'm speaking. I'm not calling you for another crusade. That's silliness. Uh, some Christians love the culture war. I'm not all for that. No, I'm speaking here of the courage that is loyal when others seem to turn away. When others flee and hide. And the question is, will we be courageous? Will we be courageous when it comes to godliness? When the people around us give in to sexual sin, when the people around us give in to drinking and drugs, when they give in to greed and all the pleasures and the entertainment of this world, will you be courageous for godliness? Even if you stand out as a sore, sore thumb. Will we be courageous when it comes to our culture? when they accept an ungodly view of marriage, when they redefine what gender is, will we stay committed and courageous for the truth? Or even when it comes to our families, will we be courageous? When those around us give in to the entertainment and the comforts of this life, will we give ourselves to raise our children in the fear of God, to raise sons and daughters who love God, we have the priorities of God who fear Him. See, will we be courageous depending upon God for strength? Will we be courageous to fulfill His purposes as He works through us? See, if Jesus is your King, if you claim Him as your King, you need to be courageous for Him. We need to, secondly, we need to be a people who are devoted to God. Devoted to God, in verse 13 to 17, we have the story we told where David is surrounded by his enemies and in longing and despondency, he, he longs for the waters of Bethlehem. Now, he didn't say that because he was physically thirsty. Perhaps there was an element of that. No, he was saying that because he longed for times of peace. Nevertheless, three of his men take him literally. 
and we don't know who they are, but we see that three men break through the ranks of the Philistines. They go to Bethlehem. They get this cup of water. They break through again, and they give this cup of water to David. And David, in response, quite shockingly, refuses to drink it. He pours it out on the floor. Now, now David isn't rude when he does this. In fact, I would suggest he's doing something quite beautiful. It's not waste that we see here, but worship. He, he takes that cup of water that is a symbol of their devotion, and he takes it and he offers it to God in worship. Notice verse 17. He pours it out to the Lord. In other words, David is simply saying this. This beautiful act of devotion, this costly act of, of devotion, this is what God is worthy of. This is the kind of worship that God alone deserves, not David. Now, dear friends, as we think about the kind of worship that our God deserves, when we think about the devotion that Jesus has shown us, how he was devoted in entering into our humanity, how he endured our suffering, our pain, our difficulties, how he endured our sin on the cross of Calvary, how he paid for it for our salvation, and how he was raised and even now he's interceding for his people, supplying them with grace and mercy. When we see his devotion, should we not be in return, be devoted to him? When you see his wholehearted care for his people, should we not care for him in the way we serve him? I think of Mary in Mark 14. We looked at that passage a few weeks ago in the evening service. We'll look at it again tonight. But think of how she sacrificed her most precious possession. Think of how Jesus viewed her sacrifice as beautiful, as pleasing. So it's that kind of devotion that is costly and risky that is worthy of our God. It's this kind of devotion that is worthy of our King. The question again is, is that the kind of devotion that he gets from you and me? Is that the kind of devotion that leads us like David's men to, to risk all for our king? Do we see this devotion in the time we give to God, in the time we give to his word, in the time we give to prayer, in the time we give to the church? Do we see this kind of devotion in the friends we make, in the money we spend, in the hobbies we pursue? Do we see this kind of devotion? Uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions, served many years in India with his family, and he became gradually concerned about his son. Uh, his son's attitude started changing over time. The son initially promised to also become a missionary, yet over time he broke his promise when he was appointed the ambassador to Burma for the queen. And with great concern, he wrote to a friend, and he wrote this in this letter. He said, pray for my son. He has degenerated into an ambassador for the British government when he should be serving the king of kings. I think there's wisdom in seeing it that way. Dear friends, how easily we degenerate in becoming more devoted to other things, to other people, to other delights and pleasures instead of being devoted and loyal to the king of kings. See, if Jesus is our king who has been devoted to us, we need to be a people who are devoted to him. The next thing I want you to see about the people we need to be is that we need to be a people who are united in God. In verse 18 to 39, we have 30 names listed, and one thing stands out about all of them, they're very different. Uh, some are known for their renown, like Abishai and Beniah in verse 18 to 23. Others are completely unknown to us, like uh, Elika or Benai. We, we only find their names in this section and other names. Uh, some of them are from the tribe of Judah, verse 24 to 29. So others are from the tribe of Israel, verse 30 onwards. Some are even foreigners who aren't Israelites or, Ju or Judeans, uh, Eliphelet and Zelek and Uriah, or, all foreigners. And some of them are remembered for all the wrong reasons. Asahel, that starts the list in verse 24. Remember, he was that, that uh, pugnacious uh, brother of Joab who went proudfully seeking to kill someone and he got murdered. And even Uriah, uh, the, the spot on 
uh, David's righteousness, who faithfully served David yet was murdered by his king. See, we see different names, different uh, people, different stories, yet one thing unites them all, they serve their sa- the same king. And dear friends, so it is with us. All of us have different names, all of us have different stories, all of us are diverse people, yet there is one head overall, there is one king, one Lord uniting all. Uh, Paul tells us there is you no know, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And Ephesians 1.22 says he's over all. We should rightly change the view, the view we have of the church. For all our diversity and all our disagreements, for all our division, Jesus is our king. It's him we serve. The church belongs to him, and we are united together to him. I hate to break it to some of you, but if Jesus is your king, then you need to serve him in his kingdom, which is fine primarily in his church. If Jesus is your king, then you belong to one another because you belong to a king who unites you. And so if Jesus is our king, we need to be a people who are united to him. That, that turn away from our own pet loves and our own uh, things and, and forsake for the sake of others, for the sake of our king. We need to be a people united to God. Lastly, we need to be a people who are known by God. Who are known by God. In the last clause of verse 39, we are introduced into a little problem in the text. Now, there are other problems textually that I won't get into this morning, but the one explicit problem is the end of verse 39, uh, because we're told there that David has 37 mighty men. And if you go do the math and you count the names up, there's actually only 36. In verse 8 to 12, we have the three. In verse 18 to 23, we have two, Abishai and Beniah. In verse, 30, uh, verse 24 and 39, we have the 30, which is actually 31. Uh, that's just because some of the 30 died and others were added on. But nevertheless, we have 36 names, not 37. And so the question becomes, who's the 37th name? Now, some argue, based on verse 32, that the mention of the sons of Jashin uh, is the 37th. So one of the sons is the 37th, and that's a legitimate answer, and there are a few uh, um, reasons for believing that. But my, my take is otherwise. Uh, I think the other possibility and the other solution is this, that the 37th name is the obvious name that's missing. And the obvious name that's missing is Joab. Joab, the, the mighty commander of Israel, of David's army, his name is nowhere to be found. Well, it's mentioned three times. It's mentioned because his two brothers are mighty men. It's mentioned because his armor bearer is a mighty man of David. But, they, but Joab's name isn't mentioned. Why? Well, ultimately because Joab proved unloyal to the king. Uh, we saw that in chapter 20, didn't we? How Joab did whatever he wanted, murdered and killed for his own sake, going against the wishes of his king. See, outwardly, Joab was for the king. He fought wars for the king, but inwardly, Joab was all for himself. Uh, Dear friends, I'm sad to say that that's still the case today. Many today are for King Jesus, but inwardly, they're for themselves. For a season, they are busy with the things of God, For the eyes of others, they are pious and zealous in religion. For self-righteous ends, they boast in what they've done for Jesus. Yet in reality, they do not know him. In reality, their hearts are far from him. There's a warning in Matthew 7 that is well known and should be well known. It should keep us up at night. Matthew 7, 22 to 23 Jesus says, on that day, that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Realize, dear friends, it's possible to be busy at work for Jesus. It's busy to sit in church for Jesus and worship Jesus and do many things for Jesus and not actually know Jesus. It's possible for you to claim to know Jesus and one day for Jesus to claim to not know you. And so the question really is, for you this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you know him as your king and your savior? And more importantly, does he know you? Does he know you because your heart is united to him in faith? Does he know you because you love him above everything and everyone else? Does he know you because you're in a relationship with him? One of trust, one of obedience. May it be, dear friends, that he knows you. And may it be that your name will be found in his list, in his book. And may it not be that your name is missing. See, if Jesus is our king, we need to be a people who know him inwardly and outwardly. Dear friends, this point should be clear. We need a righteous king. And praise God we have that king in King Jesus. And may God by his grace help us to yield ourselves to him. As that king we need, the king we need, as the king that is deserving of all of our lives. Uh, Anne Dutton was a godly poet from the early 1700s, a, a Baptist, uh, po- uh, not pastor, a poet. Uh, and in one of her letters, she encouraged her brother and she encouraged him with this truth. She said, The Lamb who died for us is worthy to reign over us. What a glory then must it be to mortal sinful worms to be servants of Zion's king. Dear friends, if Jesus is your king, that's your glory. You serve the king of kings, Zion's king, God's beloved son. What a glory, what a joy. May we all serve him wholeheartedly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for this prophecy that points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. In the list of all these names we cannot pronounce, thank you that one name stands clear. It's the name of Jesus. And so we pray, dear Lord, that he would be our king, that as he reigns over the heavens and the earth, as his word upholds all things, as all things in all creation hold together in him and for him, we pray that our hearts would be reigned by him. We pray that our hearts would be set upon him as Lord and King and that we would find our joy and our comfort, our strength, our hope in him and him alone. And so we pray, dear Lord, take hold of us this morning. Take hold of those who belong to you. May all of us leave this place knowing that we know you. And if not, may we be bothered until we get to know you. Oh, dear Lord, Lord, work, we pray, for the sake of us as a people gathered here this morning, but ultimately for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.